I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. So today we will be exploring the chapter Divine Folly, which is chapter 14 in the Red Book in Liber Segundus. And it is the beginning of four chapters that really tell a story all together. So I think of it as as being quite a playful section of the Red Book, although this particular chapter that we're going to be getting into today doesn't necessarily have that same feeling, but there's a quality in which it feels a little bit like Jung has entered a circus or kind of a different movie entirely. So we'll see that over the next four chapters as we dive in. Carol, do you want to start us off with setting us up with where our hero was when we last saw him? Well, our hero was in the middle of a sacrificial murder the last time we met him. And as you and I were talking about a a little bit earlier, Jung has brought himself to the worst in his own humanity. You have to admire the courage of a person who's looking at the absolute worst and who is living it, having an experience of it. And that in the process of that, it has brought him to a completely different place in his relationship to his God and to what his idea of God is and to what his idea of his religion is, of, of what his theology and what his philosophy is. And at the end of the sacrificial murder, he, he's talking about that. There's no escape, that you come to know what a real God is. Now you'll think up clever truisms, preventive measures, secret escape routes, excuses, potions capable of inducing forgetfulness, but it's all useless. The fire burns right through you, that which guides forces you on to the way. And then he talks about how he says, I don't want to be divine, but reasonable. The divine appears to me as irrational craziness. I hate it as an absurd disturbance of my meaningful human activity. It seems an unbecoming sickness which is stolen into the regular course of my life. Yes, I even find it superfluous. So he's brought himself to what we're going to talk about today, which is where he accepts it. You know, where, when, and he says, the divine wants to live with me. That it's been a long road from the divine of his Christian upbringing, the incredible religiosity of his family and, and his own religious intensity, a long road, if you think about the encounters with Isdubar and the castle in the forest and meeting Salome and Elijah and 
coming to the point where he finally is eating a piece of liver of a, of a girl that, that has died, that's a long road to come back to some way to be with now a new idea of what divine might actually mean. Yeah, a new idea of what divine might mean, which is the core of Jung's psychology. This very small chapter, it's a smaller chapter than many, but it holds so much of the key to Jung's psychology in that he is really expressing the critical importance of living your own existence in its, in its exquisite singularity. And I think of this with Jung's deep understanding of astrology throughout his work and the way he used it with clients, the way he used the I Ching to support in, in very nuanced decision-making. These things came after most of what we're reading right now. It came after his dive into the unconscious that we're exploring. But it really is, is part of the foundation of his understanding that our decisions and our personalities are exquisitely singular. And therefore, we should not be imitating anyone else's existence or anything that has come before, any era that has come before, that we are all world-making all the time. So let's just read. I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit. And then my thoughts from this have gone several directions, which, as I sent to you and to Anne, good morning, Anne, and Anne has a lot of really wonderful thoughts about this too. So you'll be hearing from the three of us. So we'll read this about divine folly, and then we'll go several different ambient directions that keep circling back to the center. So divine folly on the reader's edition, page 328. I am standing in a high hall. Before me, I see a green curtain between two columns. The curtain parts easily. I see into a small, deep room with bare walls. There's a small window with bluish glass above. I set foot on the stair leading up to this room between the pillars and enter. In the rear wall, I see a door right and left. It's as if I must choose between right and left. I choose the right. The door is open. I enter. I'm in the reading room of a large library, and in the background sits a small, thin man of pale complexion, apparently the librarian. The atmosphere is troubling scholarly ambitions, scholarly conceit, wounded scholarly vanity. It made me wonder if he'd been to the Bodleian. <laughs> Apart from the librarian, I see no one. I step toward him. He looks up from his book and says, what do you want? I'm somewhat embarrassed since I don't know what I really want. Thomas Akempis crosses my mind. I'd like to have Thomas Akempis's The Imitation of Christ. He looks at me somewhat astonished as if he didn't credit me with such an interest. He gives me an order form to fill out. I too think that it's astonishing to ask for Thomas Akempis. Are you surprised that I'm requesting Thomas's work? The librarian says, well, yes, this book is seldom asked for, and I wouldn't have expected this interest from you. Jung says, I must confess, I'm also somewhat surprised by this inspiration, but recently I came across a passage from Thomas that made a particular impression on me. Why, I can't really say. If I remember correctly, it dealt with the problem of the imitation of Christ. The librarian asks, do you have a particular theological or philosophical interest? Or Jung says, do you mean whether I want to read it for the purpose of prayer? Well, hardly. He says, if I read 
Thomas Akempis, I do so for the sake of prayer or something similar rather than out of scholarly interest. The librarian says, are you that religious? I had no idea. Jung says, you know that I value science extraordinarily highly, but there are actual moments in life where science also leaves us empty and sick. In such moments, a book like Thomas's means very much to me since it is written from the soul. But someone old-fashioned, the librarian says, we can no longer get involved in Christian dogmatics these days, surely. Jung says, we haven't come to an end with Christianity by simply putting it aside. It seems to me that there's more to it than we see. Well, what is there about it? It's just a religion. For what reasons and moreover, at what age do men set it aside? Presumably most do so during their student days or perhaps even early. Would you call that a particularly discriminating age? And have you ever examined more closely the grounds on which people put aside positive religion? The grounds are mostly dubious, such as that the contents of belief clash with natural science or philosophy. The librarian rejoins him. In my view, such an objection should not necessarily be rejected out of hand, despite the fact that there are better reasons, such as scholarly reply. For example, I consider the lack of a true and proper sense of actuality in religion a disadvantage. Incidentally, a host of substitutes now exists for the loss of opportunity for prayer caused by the collapse of religion. Nietzsche, for example, has written a more than veritable book of prayer, not to mention Faust. Jung says, I suppose that's correct in a certain sense, but especially Nietzsche's truth strikes me as too agitated and provocative. It's good for those who are yet to be set free. For that reason, his truth is good only for them. I believe that I've recently discovered that we also need a truth for those who are forced into a corner. It's possible that instead they need a depressive truth, which makes man smaller and more inward. The librarian says, forgive me, but Nietzsche interiorizes man exceptionally well. And Jung says, perhaps from your standpoint, you're right. But I can't help feeling that Nietzsche speaks to those who need more freedom not to those who clash strongly with life, who bleed from wounds, and who hold fast to actualities. My brain says, but Nietzsche confers a precious feeling of superiority upon such people. Jung says, I can't dispute that, but I know men who need inferiority, not superiority. You express yourself very paradoxically. I don't understand you. Inferiority can hardly be a desideratum. Perhaps you'll understand me better if instead of inferiority, I say resignation, a word that one used to hear a lot of, but seldom anymore. It also sounds very Christian. It says, as I said, there seem to be all sorts of things in Christianity that maybe one would do well to keep. Nietzsche is too oppositional, like everything healthy and long lasting. Truth, unfortunately, adheres more to the middle way which we unjustly abhor. The librarian says, I really had no idea that you take such a mediating position, Jung, after all of this inner 
dialogue has arrived at the middle place. Neither did I. My position is not entirely clear to me. If I mediate, I certainly mediate in a very peculiar manner. At this moment, the servant brought the book, and I took my leave from the librarian. Thank you, Carol, for reading all of that. It's so beautiful. One of the things that this took me to, I'll just share this now, was the astrology of this moment. So this is the night of January 14th, 1914. And we've talked about this before, that what we're looking at here is in the inner wheel, this is Carl Jung's natal horoscope. So we could say this is an origin story that is present both in his beginnings and in his current experiences, an origin story, but not fate, not what wiring, not inevitable, but a profound beginning. And this, the outer wheel is very much this moment that he's experiencing things. And since we started in March, the first introduction, the first knock at the door of this place here, the doorway into this part of the map, not just interior, but the infinite, the, what's called the 12th house in astrology. When we began in March, Jung's first experience was something crossing in and waking up the depths. That if we think of, of the map as talking about how we're here in time and space and gravity and matter, the actualities that he's talking about, in the horoscope, this is not actualities. This is the infinite. This is the, this is, Jung is stumbling into what he comes to call the collective unconscious. And at this moment, and this has been building more and more as he's got deeper and deeper into this process, beginning in October of 1913, and go going through his active imaginations through November, December, and now here mid-January, he is, time itself is focusing his incarnate life on the infinite and the unconscious. It's something is rising in him that it, previous to this has not been clearly seen in this world. But this is what's called a grand cross in the cardinal signs. Chiron is in Aries in his natal chart, Venus and Mercury in Cancer in his natal chart. The times themselves, Neptune and Mars are in Cancer. His natal Jupiter is in the cardinal sign Libra. And here we have this extraordinary weather, this cosmic weather traveling through the cardinal sign Capricorn. So cardinality means to be at the source of something or at the heart of something or at the beginning of something. And in the zodiacal round, one of the ways that you can think about the zodiac is there is an arising that is not yet in form, there's a forming, and then there's a dissolution and a preparation for the next rising. So a, a lot of astrological thinking is formlessness into form, going back to formlessness. The cardinal signs are where something is rising and potent that wants to make itself visible but hasn't come down into form yet. 
So it's why this particular chapter is interesting to me, this what is, what is actual and what is soul. And the, the cardinal cross, this idea of, of, the, of a cross, the imitation of Christ, the idea of crucifixion, I got interested in the word cross. There is the cross of the crucifixion. There's the, the root word crux, to be at the crux of something or at the heart of something. There's the alchemical word crucible, which is to bring all the elements together so that everything is held together so that there's something that holds the interior, not only holds the interiority to, that, to which he's referring, but that divergent and apparently unrelated things are beginning to brought into consciousness and integration because they're being held in a certain place. And you and I talked about this this morning. I thought of Horcruxes and Harry Potter, you know, the idea of how something locates itself, you know, both it, it both is locative, it places itself in the world, but it also is drawing certain kinds of energies to itself. So Jung, this idea of Christ, the crucifixion, the cross, being at a crossroads, standing in the middle of a crossroads centering, he's very much in the middle of this and his language really, really reflects that. Oh, Carol, every time you do this, it brings up so many different thoughts for me. I could go in many different directions. I think that Anne sent us a really beautiful exploration of Thomas Akempis and the imitation of Christ. Uh, and I know has a background in Nietzsche too. So I'm curious to invite Anne in to explore this. And maybe Carol too, at some point, you can just share the image of Thomas Akempis's imitation of Christ too, just for folks to get a sense of this book, what it speaks to and, and how it shows up in the next couple of chapters of the Red Book. So why this book? And do you want to tell us a little bit about why this book and, and your thoughts on this chapter? After the Bible, it's the second most translated, I believe, and read book in Christianity. And what I did when I wrote to you and Carol was I, I gave a small quote from Thomas Akempis, which is really interesting, which I might read. Everyone wishes to have knowledge, but what good is great learning? unless it is accompanied by a feeling of deep awe and profound reverence toward God. Indeed, a humble farmer who serves God is better than a proud philosopher. If you want to learn something that will really help you, learn to see yourself as God sees you and not as you see yourself in the distorted mirror of your own self-importance. So the deep call to humility. Now I'm going to read a translation from the verse 2 of Lao Tzu. The sanest man sets up no deed, lays down no law, takes everything that happens as it comes, as something to animate, not to appropriate, to earn not to own, and this is where the real parallel with the Thomas Akempis comes in, to accept naturally without self-importance. If you never assume importance, you can never lose it. Mm -hmm. So we have, and we could take texts from Buddhism, we could take texts from everywhere and find the same thing of humility. So then I asked, but are they saying the same thing? And the answer is, of course, yes and no. Because what happens 
when you simply take the word God out of there, destate, what you do is you destabilize the whole belief system behind the Judeo-Christian epic narrative. And I'm going to give a quote of a wonderful, uh, one I've always cherished, Stephen Batchelor, once a Buddhist monk, and he talks about himself, and he certainly here is referring to me, those like myself who find themselves living in the gaps between different and sometimes conflicting mythologies. And he goes on to call them epic narratives that help us make meaning out of our brief life on earth. He goes on to say, I'm continually aware of other voices I equally cherish. So I'm trying to answer this question, are they the same, what Lao Tzu was saying and what Thomas Akempis is saying way back then? And no, and it's that tiny word, God, that comes up in every single verse that makes such a difference. And I'm going to quote one other Zen Buddhist trained monk in what, in a sentence of his that I love, in which he says, Jesus is a silent colossus that has defined Western culture for the better part of 2,000 years. He's the central persona in Western culture's collective dream. Now, I'm going to add to that one other central persona, and that is the unquestioned patriarchal presence of another silent colossus called God the Father. And when you remove those, when you remove that from the text, the implications are vast. And I'm going to just quite, I hope, quickly enough, refer to Bachelor's phrase, epic narratives that help us make meaning out of our brief stay on earth. When I was young and studying philosophy, I remember reading, for example, Descartes. And he comes to this very complex, he goes into a room, he doubts everything, and finally he comes up with one thing that's secure, and that is, as everybody knows, I think, therefore I am. So he's brought all of truth down to thinkability. But what he's done, of course, and what's happening throughout all those centuries leading up to Jung, is what are you going to do then with the unthinkability of a transcendent, patriarchal, the all-male trinity. And he can't, nor can Kant, nor can any of them let go of that epic narrative. So he takes this unbelievable conclusion he's come to, I think, therefore I am, and he kind of twists it around and manipulates it to go back and use it and prove, literally prove the existence of God. Kant will do the same thing. And it wasn't until I read this chapter that I said, I got it. I know now why they did it. I always wondered why they did it. But it is because, whether you like it or not, Christianity for 2,000 years was your access to the spiritual dimension. Yeah. And I think we cannot forget that with Jung. 
So what we're watching in this chapter, privileged to watch, is the incredible wrestling with that that's been going on for several hundred years. Descartes can't let go of that epic narrative because if you do, what it leaves you with is the kind of, I want to call it the disintegration of the caterpillar or the chrysalis of that civilization. So there's some deeper voice that says, all right, we've got it all worked out to be scientific and thinkable. But an inner voice is saying, help, I can't let go. I can't let go of Christianity. And you hear that throughout Jung, his struggle. He holds it, he lets go. He holds it, he lets go. There's no mistake book he asks for in this chapter is the imitation of Christ. I think we do a big disservice not to hear the depth of that struggle. And I'll just add one other thing because it's powerful in this chapter. Along comes Nietzsche, who's half crazy himself, and shouts out loud, God is dead. Now, somebody's finally thrown down the, the gauntlet. They've come out with what everybody for several hundred years has been afraid of. Oh, my God, this all-male trinity, this patriarchal transcendent father God is dead. And no matter whether you become existentialist, you are young, no matter where you're going to stand on that, you are going to have to deal with that it's waving a red flag in front of the bull of Western civilization. So I think this is a particularly powerful small verse because you're watching this incredible moment where he's wrestling with his demons, with 2,000 years of demons, not to mention his family. What, there are six pastors in his mother's family, his father, his grandfather. It's extraordinary to be able to witness him down on the ground wrestling. And thank you. How yeah. extraordinary. How extraordinary. And the highlighting of the courage of this book and this transformation. I mean, that it, it brings tears to my eyes on a regular occasion when I really tap into the memory of what it must have taken for Jung to dive into his personal history in this way and the collective psychology and question everything and ask something that I ask myself often and, and speak with clients about. If we're supposed to adhere to the narrative we were all raised with, one would imagine the world would be in better shape than it is in. But it feels as though Jung really was able to say, look, the world, the entire world is in a disaster now. Something profound is being shaken to its core. So maybe something is off in our very principles and our very ideas of how to live and how to be in relationship with each other. And maybe this idea that thinking is us that we were raised with or that Christ is it that we were raised with is off. And so the courage for him to dive into all that and begin brick by brick deconstructing the whole thing is extraordinary. I think it's really worth reading, if you didn't mind, that what happened to him in, as an adolescent, that vision. We're going to finish reading this chapter shortly, but do you want to share the vision? All right. 
So Jung is a young, he's an adolescent. He's asked his father what the Trinity means and he can't get any good answer. His father is attached to the church and the dogma. But here is Jung, a young adolescent, can't get the answers he wants. He comes out of school one day, sees the cathedral in the square of Basel, where his great-grandfather on his mother's side was once the bishop. And here's Jung, I'm reading Jung. The roof of the cathedral glittered, the sun sparkling from the new brightly glazed tiles. I was overwhelmed by the beauty of the sight and thought, the world is beautiful and the church is beautiful and God made all this and sits above it far away in the blue sky on a golden throne. And here came a great hole in my thoughts and a choking sensation. I felt numbed and knew only don't go on thinking now. Something terrible is coming. Something I don't want to think. And so this is not Jung's quote. Fearing he was about to commit a sin against the Holy Ghost, Jung held the dreaded thought at bay. I can't do that to my parents, he thought, imagining their disappointment and grief at his eternal damnation. His anguish continued for two days and nights. Who was creating this compulsion to think a blasphemous thought? Was it God? Was it the devil? On the third night, after concluding that it was God's intention, he relaxed and he let himself complete the fantasy. And here are his words again. I gathered all my courage. And my God, you're right, Satya. All is, he's adolescent. And let the thought come. I saw before me the cathedral, the blue sky. God sits on his golden throne, high above the world. And from under the throne, an enormous turd falls upon the sparkling new roof, shatters it, and breaks the wall of the cathedral asunder. Mm. And the aftermath of that was an experience of extreme bliss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the bliss of God pooping on the cathedral. Right? <laughs> yeah. so Showering that, it. That story that Anne just read, if you're interested in reading it, is in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And it's, it's a sweet section because what part of what Jung does in his memoir so exquisitely, which the, and the memoir was compiled by his secretary, uh, Aniela Yaffe. Uh, it's really a lot of her work and her wrestling Jung to sit down and tell her his stories. But it's exquisite because he highlights these tiny, tiny little moments from his childhood and from his life that I think all of us have, but we, for the most part, don't think much of them. And yet here Jung draws out this extremely formative experience in which he is trying to suppress this blasphemous thought and that his whole kind of psychological development and theology is born from the recognition that he felt a tremendous relief after days and days of neurotic pain. He felt relief from letting this thought complete itself or this fantasy complete itself. And that the fantasy kind of rounds out the whole 
uh, experience of God, that God also poops or that God causes destruction or, or however you want to read that, that something gross happens. It's not just the beauty and extraordinary bliss of the cathedral. It's the whole thing so that he feels complete in some way. And that, again, we're getting into this next four chapters, this chapter and the coming three chapters, where we see a lot of this continuing to unfold. And the idea, Descartes' idea of I think, therefore I am, getting finally reworked and rounded out in such an extraordinary way. So I'll just say one more thing as we set this up and then hand this back to Carol here for a moment, or we can finish reading The Divine Folly. But if you see this this chapter and the next three chapters, so in Divine Folly and then going through these three nights of visions, there's, there's really a nod back to the chapter Castle in the Forest, where Jung encounters the old scholar by himself, and there's a servant. So the servant here in the library brings Jung the book. In that story, it was a servant, this kind of invisible figure who was helping Jung to get to his room. And then there's a feminine figure. And that's gonna, she's going to show up in this next chapter in this very sweet way. But she's the cook. She's this portly cook who, who will have Thomas Kempis's book in her apron. She reads it. So we're going to learn about her and explore her. But this rounding out then of the thinking function and how Jung is really trusting. And this is tremendous courage, again, for a man at the height of patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism in the world. He's climbed every ladder that can be climbed either by birth or through a lot of effort or divine provenance and synchronicity and meeting Emma, his wife. There's so many ways in which he then has this courage to begin rounding out his own psyche and supporting the world to round out in terms of typology. And so Carol, again, I love feeling that cross and that quality of the four of the quaternity, because this is all Jung rounding out his own personal typology and, and supporting us to learn about it. Well, and the, the cross is such an old, old, it's not just a Christian symbol. You think about the aboriginal nomads who carried a pole with them. And at the end of their journey, they would plant the pole. And it was a cross. It was above, below, behind, before. You think about the incredible Mayan uh, temples and the crosses, the, the grand crosses of the Mayan temples. There's very early, early understanding of astronomical crosses as early as uh, 3rd century BCE in the Sumerian culture of certain stars aligning themselves in a perfect cross form. And I have a, something else to observe about, about redemption, but I'll save it until afterwards. I think that you should read, read the rest of, the, of Divine Folly, and then I'll talk about the cross as a symbol of redemption. Okay, wonderful. I'm thinking, too, just when you say that about the aboriginal stick placed in the ground, feeling that quality of the world navel, the, the, yes. the experience of each of us and, and what Jung draws out so powerfully, the importance of our living our own lives is that we become the world navel, each of us, that we have the capacity to tap into the divine, the soul, the collective, if we do our own work and make ourselves a portal of this. And allow that connection to really take root. So that's, that's what he opens up in this next two pages of reading. So we're going to start again on 331 and finish reading Divine Folly. And let yourself think back to chapters that we've read before, because he's really building on everything here. The divine wants to live with me. My resistance is in vain. I asked my thinking, and it said... 
take as your model one that shows you how to live the divine. Our natural model is Christ. We have stood under his law since antiquity, first outwardly and then inwardly. At first we knew this and then knew it no longer. We fought against Christ, we deposed him, and we seemed to be conquerors, but he remained in us and mastered us. It is better to be thrown into visible chains than into invisible ones. You can certainly leave Christianity, but it does not leave you. Your liberation from it is delusion. Christ is the way. You can certainly run away, but then you are no longer on the way. The way of Christ ends on the cross. Hence, we are crucified with him in ourselves. With him, we wait until we die for our resurrection. With Christ, the living experience, no resurrection, unless it occurs after death. If I imitate Christ, he is always ahead of me, and I can never reach the goal unless I reach it in him. But thus I move beyond myself and beyond time, in and through which I am as I am. I thus blunder into Christ and his time, which created him thus and not otherwise. And so I am outside my time, despite the fact that my life is this time and I am split between the life of Christ and my life that still belongs to this present time. But if I am truly to understand Christ, I must realize how Christ actually lived only his own life and imitated no one. He did not emulate any model. If I thus truly imitate Christ, I do not imitate anyone. I emulate no one, but go my own way, and I will also no longer call myself a Christian. Initially, I wanted to emulate and imitate Christ by living my life while observing his precepts. A voice in me protested against this and wanted to remind me that my time also had its prophets who struggle against the yoke with which the past burdens us. I did not succeed in uniting Christ with the prophets of this time. The one demands bearing, the other discarding. The one commands submission, the other the will. How should I think of this contradiction without doing injustice to either? What I could not conjoin in my mind probably lends itself to living one after the other. And so I decided to cross over into lower and everyday life, my life, and begin down there where I stood. When thinking leads to the unthinkable, it is time to return to simple life. What thinking cannot solve, life solves, and what action never decides is reserved for thinking. If I ascend to the highest and most difficult on the one hand and seek to eke out redemption that reaches even higher, then the true way does not lead upward but towards the depths, since only my other leads me beyond myself. But acceptance of the other means a descent into the opposite, from seriousness into the laughable, from suffering into the cheerful, from the beautiful into the ugly, from the pure into the impure. I I love the footnote to this. His own way led him to the cross for humanity's own way leads to the cross. My way also leads to the cross, but not to that of Christ, but to mine, which is the image of the sacrifice and of life. And this idea that he was 
in the middle of something that his life brought him to this center of the balancing of opposites, the resolution of opposites. I started thinking about all of the words there are associated with, if you think of the imitation of Christ, of who Christ was, God is often a shepherd or a king, or, um, but Christ is often called the Redeemer. And it led me to think about, in the astrological language, the name, the mythological name, Neptune, is, you know, it wasn't just the Little Mermaid's dad. <laughs> it's not just this, this figure that lives at the bottom of the ocean. It is the ocean, and from, certainly from a Jungian point of view, the oceanic. It's this idea that there is a place in which all things inhere and from which all separateness arises and to which all separateness returns and goes back to oneness. They, and, and I don't mean transcendent. You know, it's more ha, has more to do with living with mystery, with, a, with the, that mystery. And Neptune in a person's chart, I mean, Neptune is playing a very powerful role for him right now. Not only is he entering the depths, from the heights, from his past, from his history, from his culture. But it brought me back to this wonderful book by a very good astrologer who was a Jungian practitioner who came to astrology and who really, with her writing and thinking, transformed the astrological world in the 80s and 90s and still to this day informs astrological thinking from a Neptunian point of view. And this is, a, I'm going to read a bit from her book, The Astrological Neptune and the Quest for Redemption. This idea that there's something wrong. There's something wrong with us. There's a way things should be. There's the shining city on the hill. There's the new Jerusalem. There's the idealized behavior. And that God doesn't shit on his churches. You know, that, that, you know, that, that unthinkable thought. And that we need to be redeemed somehow and how that idea of redemption fractures us to either we're transcendent and good or we're hopeless and need to be saved or we're condemned to narcissistic self-involvement. You know? So this is just a brief um, quote from Liz Green. The search for the redeemer is a familiar one in the personal history of each individual particularly the individual whose birth chart is dominated by Neptune, that there are obligations we might owe to something greater than the ego, I do not doubt, nor do I question the necessity at critical times of life, and a grand cross is a critical time of life, of relinquishing or sacrificing something in order to remember and renew the bond with that which is greater." This is the deeper meaning of Neptune's transits and progressions in the horoscope. But we mistake the outer object for the inner reality and not only make our redeemers literal, but our sacrifices as well. That the Holy Savior is so often mythically associated with the fish and with the waters and with Neptunian or Piscean qualities should not be surprising. The dimly remembered bliss of our water resource, whether we choose to call it God, Mother, or the collective unconscious, is so ancient and inherent that inevitably the Redeemer who we seek comes out of the waters like ourselves. He or she is human like us and therefore subject to the suffering of incarnation. Yet somehow this magical figure is also more than human. 
lacking the compulsive instinctuality of all mortal things, and therefore he or she is closer to, sent by, or even the child of that parent deity towards whom we strive. The Savior must be a victim in order to salvage lost souls. And I think about getting to the place of where he does in the end of what you just read, which is, it's irredeemable. It's, it, it, it's gone. It's, it's now someplace else. But it's interesting to me that Christ is then the imitation of Christ and of being led to the cross and of the cross of, of matter and spirit, of being crucified in matter and spirit, of how do you live in this life with this imperfection, with this horror? How do you live here like this? You know? He's having a watery moment for sure. And so are we. I mean, this is a part of my clients say to me, well, is there a COVID signature in astrology? And a lot of people think it's Pluto, but the, the Pluto-Saturn-Jupiter conjunction is the confinement. Neptune is the virus. It's touched everything. It's everywhere. It's, it's, it's not just global, not just pan Demic, but it is it's in the ethers and so we ourselves are are in this moment very very much of how you know how are we going to live right and it all of this speaks to me to to many of the things we've spoken of in other salons but the idea that part of this time is about a mass individual maturation you know, or individual maturation on a global scale that we are being asked in so many forms to differentiate. And I don't know how true this is, Carol, but it feels as though Neptune and Saturn are really potent opposites in terms of father images, right? One is undifferentiated. Neptune, Pisces is this undifferentiated everything. And Saturn, which we're being tasked with so deeply right now, is about profound maturation rapidly, right? Is this true? Well, they're not literally opposed to each other, but it's a really interesting point because in the I Ching, reading number eight is about leadership that comes from unity. And reading number 61 is about creating successful structures of value and meaning through decision-making and separation. I mean, reading number 60, limitation. So B and J, they're, they're both really interesting expressions, certainly of the Confucian and the Han dynasty's understanding of we're separate and we're distinct and we're in matter, but it isn't the, you know, to the, to the beautiful stuff that Anne read from Thomas Akempis, we're also part of something that's much more profound and tangible and unifying, and that of all of those symbols, water is most truly like the way that it flows and that it doesn't, it isn't stopped by an obstacle. It isn't frightened of a depth. It isn't, doesn't find things insurmountable. It, it adapts itself. And, um, and so then that's Neptune's realm, you know, Saturn's realm is matter and Neptune's realm is water. Beautiful. And the Chinese say the softest thing is the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. So this section this last two pages that I read speaks to this quality of personal maturation and the, the task that we all have if we are not going to defer our lives to a religion or philosophy, theology, political structure that has already been created. 
if we're not going to defer our own psychology and our own life to something that has already been created, then we have to become Christ. We have to become the Buddha. We have to become the philosopher who sorts through in each of our own skin, how do I live now? How do I live? And Jung highlights this question of time so beautifully. How do I live in this moment, bringing the spirit of the depths into relationship with the spirit of the times? Because Christ lived at a very different time. Jung is, is drawing that point out very clearly. So I live in this time. And we each live in this time in different locations. Another thing that I think the language of astrology highlights so beautifully, that place and time and culture and the specificity of each of our lives is the world making and is part of what we all need to draw on to continue rebirthing the world all the time instead of relying on emulating old stories and old people. It's such a profound chapter to me in that way. So I'll just introduce you, Anne, again for a moment, because for folks, we just keep referring to you as Anne, but you're Anne Carroll. Other folks maybe know our last name. So hi, Anne. Very, very shortly. I just want to say that I think one of the genius, part of the genius of Jung at that moment in time is that he did not collapse in breaking from the old into what was prevalent everywhere, Marxism, um, yeah. existentialism it's so easy to go from all right if everything if truth is the thinkable to then end up in a totally secular place and the amazing thing and i talked about that when i talked about the 12 step which came directly out of jung's thinking is that he would say unless you struggle or wrestle with a notion of a power greater than yourself there will be ultimately no healing. And I think that's what makes the passage we're looking at so relevant to where we are today, that we both have to be in and of this world, and at the same time we have to wrestle, which everyone does in the 12th step, with the question of, all right, so what is a power greater than myself without which there will not be any genuine or profound healing. Mm -hmm. And that distinguishes Jung from so many others at that moment in time in European civilization. Right. Right. So you're referring there, Anne, to the episode we did on one of the lowly and what Jung draws out in terms of the necessity of struggle and the idea of being a shaman too. Anyone who's awake and connected to the other world has in some form suffered or struggled through. It's something that Western medicine is extremely uncomfortable with. So in a lot of the communities around healing and and various psychological disorders, a lot of the discussion is what happens when we try to medicate out all discomfort or that we are so uncomfortable with that, that we also don't find revelation, right? So this, when we talk about courage and Jung's courage, the courage that I hope spreads into more and more men's work in particular globally, that we offer that courage might not be about battle, physical battle anymore. But part of what Jung is drawing out so profoundly here is that courage is the vulnerability of being profoundly present with what is inside of you and going to battle internally with what is inside of you. I think of Jung's Leo son in this respect and, and just 
the chutzpah, the courage that he had to say, okay, maybe, maybe possibly I do know something that hasn't yet been taught or that hasn't yet been, been shown and that it is important for world making. And maybe even though I have all the power in the world, the fact that I am miserable suggests that something else needs to be born here. It's really profound. Brene Brown, of course, talks about courage and vulnerability in a beautiful ways. Brene Brown, I think, has drawn this out a lot in the last 10 years or so. Uh, but it is such a profound part of men's work and all of our work right now to say courage may have a different tone. It makes me think the word shaman is what made me think of this, that you die to the world in order to be in it in a different way. My daughter-in-law was translating for some chichki shamanesses that had been hired by a lot of California housewives who thought they wanted to be shamans. And as they were flying from the Seattle airport to California, the, my daughter-in-law speaks Russian. And so she's interviewing them and they say to her, do these people understand what we do? And my daughter-in-law said, well, I don't know what you do. What do you do? They said, we die. And I think people have a lot of mistaken ideas about what's actually involved in that kind of transformation. You know, well, redemption and, is a kind of pale word compared to that. And when our healers are so, dis are so uncomfortable with dying uh, on a psychological mm -hmm. level, or when our healers haven't experienced that, and that's part of, I'm uncomfortable generally with the modern use of shaman in the Western world, but the, but the mm -hmm. foundational idea of the shaman is somebody who is a psychopomp, right? It's somebody who can help you navigate between the worlds of the dead or the worlds of psychosis and the present world. Yes. And, and so in, if our healers are extremely uncomfortable with dying, death, pain, suffering, all of these things, struggle, then, then we also get blocked in our process so we can understand then why we lack courage globally in this way. So again, this is why Jung's work will maybe never get old for me. We'll see what comes, but it has yet to get old for me because it, yeah. it provides me with courage to, to dive into things that I think there wouldn't be a map for me necessarily. So let's open up to, to question and answer here. Hi, Janet. Hello. Yes, this is just such a fascinating section. I love the, the bit where he says... I must realize how Christ actually lived his only his own life and imitated no one. And then he goes on to say, a voice in me protested against this and wanted to remind me that in my time also has its prophets. And um, one of the things I'm reading at the moment is Peter Kingsley's Catafalk. Mm. And Kingsley uh, identifies uh, Jung as a prophet in the Old Testament sense but he also makes the connection with Allen Ginsberg's howl. So the idea of howling the way our world is going down the toilet is part of that. But it also reminds me of, of so many other things. This little section from Ibn Arabi reminds me, or uh, Anne's piece on Thomas Akempis is so much akin to this because he says, we empty our hearts of reflective thinking and we sit together with God on the carpet of Adab and spiritual attentiveness and presence and readiness to receive whatever comes to us from him, so that it is God who takes care of teaching us by means of unveiling and spiritual realization. So it's, it's this giving up completely of self. So when they have focused their hearts and their spiritual aspirations, 
and taken refuge with him, giving up any reliance on the claims of reflection and investigation and intellectual results. In other words, get out the library, Jung. <laughs> Go back in the kitchen. Then their hearts are purified and open. Once they have this inner receptivity, God manifests himself to them, teaching them and informing them through the direct vision of the inner meanings of those obscure spiritual words and reports in a single instant. This is one of the kinds of spiritual unveiling. So all, all these things just layer up for me as, as, as saying the same kind of thing, really. Um, yeah. Thank you, Janet, so much. Beautiful. I love to feel that we're all finding our own forms here and the way that this connects for each of us with things that we read and meditate on and, and all the rest. It's really beautiful. Okay. Uh, hi, Nan. I'm going back to your framing of the rebirthing the world. And you didn't use the word context, but you did say place, time, culture, and a lot of other things. And so what, um, what comes up for me these days right now in this um, imperative to be present in our personal and public learning the skills to rebirth the world is like how we deal with our historical and cultural leaders, our Washingtons and Jeffersons and Lincolns, and I just named three men, and how to, how to incorporate their contributions and stories into our political, social, personal lives. We don't know what to do with this picking and choosing. You know, we don't know, it seems like we don't know how to, when we figure out a value, like there's a value to not having been a slave owner. And then we toss out the whole person and that even historical narrative based on one. And, you know, I'm not saying that this shouldn't be done by any means. I, I feel that that's what we are doing. And it's a rough time. Mm -hmm. And I'll just stop there. Thank you. It just strikes me that I think there's a difference between throwing out the history and shifting what we celebrate. And, and I think that's part of what's happening right now. If I understood what you're expressing there, for me, part of what's unfolding, and it's inelegant, I mean, history is not an elegant process, right? But that we are shifting our collective values away from celebrating profound imperfection in human beings without honoring the imperfection. And that a lot of the men that have been turned into monuments globally have been horrific to people around them and nature around them. And so we're shifting what we value and honor, which I think is profoundly important, but that we also need to honor history. And so we can tell history with, with more complexity in the future. Again, I think I'm understanding what you're expressing there. And Carol, maybe you want to respond as well. well. I, 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 think that you, I think that's the question. And I think if you think about Jung's very early understanding that he had to kill his hero, that you have to kill the hero and you have to kill capacity because it's a frozen image that, doesn't, that isn't alive in its wholeness. And, you know, that's a long way back. Killing Siegfried, killing these Nordic Teutonic 
heroes that have the capacity to save the world and make everything right was a really critical first step for him in getting to having a relationship with this God that he's in relationship to now. It's a process, and we're in the process of our heroes aren't our heroes. And, you know, people, I, I hear Tina Turner's voice in my head from the Mad Max series where she sings that we don't need another hero. Mm-hmm. No, we need a whole human being. Right. No, I agree. I, and I did, I'm not defending, <laughs> I'm not defending these old values that don't serve us. Yeah. I guess I'm just really recognizing that we're in the bardo of figuring out how to do this. Maybe we have a glimpse of what we need to do, but there's naturally a lot of destruction that happens, you know, when things die. And I'm just in awe of how things are just feel like they're crashing down right now. So many things are crashing down. Even the idea of globalization, which I'm sure a lot of us quote whatever we choose to call ourselves, think that globalization is something that only has a a positive arc forward. And yet we are retreating on even how we think of globalization and our, our neighbors. So I'm just, I'm just leaving myself with the the grand cross of, of Cardinal confusion. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Here we all are. Yeah, you know, I, 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 we are at the end of an 800-year cycle, a 200-year cycle, an 80-year cycle, and a 20-year cycle, and so we are at the beginning of 20 and 80 and 200 and 800. So we're at the crossroads. No question about it. Thanks, Nan. Yeah, thank you, Nan. Hi, Ashley. Well, thank you. This is so rich. I, I've been able to pop in on a few of these, but what's really resonating with me and what I'm working with in my own practice is this whole practice of refuge and how to find refuge in a really practical way that doesn't go into an intellectual concept of that original sin, this ad- redemption. So I'm just working with it because uh, as a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, we do this practice of prostrating on the ground. And I'm introducing this to non-Buddhist practitioners right now um, in a, a, a practice that I call forest refuge. And just coming back to this point, which is where, how do we surrender and um, find that connection with this greater sense of, I don't want to say God, but this cosmic force or this overriding intelligence that's that's operating within everything without laying our narratives so thickly on everything and i think what i'm i've found in my own process is that you have to go through those doorways of laying your narrative very thick and then watching them dissolve and that that's the maturation process we're in right now and how to give people access to a physicalizing of that process I feel like is lost. We've lost a physicalization of a surrender process. And um, in the old traditions, they had them, whatever self-flagellating prostrations, Tibetan Buddhism still has it, Islam has it. I think a lot of native tradition cultures, shamanism does have that death process of most of the cultures where you're ingesting plant medicine, you are on the earth. The only way you can survive is your belly is to the earth and you're purging or you're dying. So I'm just, so, 
for this conversation. And it's, I just hope that we can help each other find some kind of a practical doorway into this internal process of maturation. So it doesn't just stay up in the head, which yeah. is where I think the comfort of the patriarchy lives. Absolutely. And, and, and that the embodiment comes through for me in the Red Book, particularly in these coming chapters. And you can feel it next week with the cook. She's a portly embodied, non intellectual cook. And, and you can really feel that quality of embodiment. But I also really love, Ashley, the way you speak to the prostration pose. It's something that I prescribe, if you will, to clients who are stuck in shame cycles and whose ego is, you can feel the ego kind of holding onto the edge of, of whatever the former belief system was and the need to just let the ego surrender with some ritual process that it's okay, that shame will, will complete if we can get through it, if we can die into whatever that personal process is. I have found the prostration pose to be very comforting when I needed some support in my own life to just release, but not intellectually, right? And so this is just briefly to say that Jung found ritual process to be profoundly important psychologically, mm. even when he separated it from religious dogma, so that we can find our way to see what rituals are psychologically profound for us mm. when they are separated from the, the structured dogma lineage, maybe, where they can get calcified, that Jung was not in favor of the calcification of old traditions, but he was profoundly in favor of ways in which ritual help us to continue our psychological transformation. Mm. Okay, Steve. Uh, yeah, I've, I was just really struck by this, this whole idea of the crossroads. When, when you were talking about that idea of the world naval Nepal, um, hopefully you can see this. This is an image from oh, yeah. the new traditions of... Can you tell us what that image was again carefully so we can reference it if needed? This is, in, in the voodoo tradition, there is uh, the pole in, in the middle of the place you worship. And then frequently you'll be drawing um, what's called a veve, which is, you know, intended to, to bring in a, a particular, to kind of open the gateway to the particular spirits, the particular loa that you're, that you're trying to, you know, that you're, that you're working with. And a lot of times the way in is, is the crossroads of, of Legba. He's this kind of psychopomp spirit who stands at the, the crossroads of life and death, of the material world and the spiritual world. He's, he's the kind of opener of that gateway. And I was so struck by the opening of this passage where Jung is describing going in between these two pillars and having to make this choice between, between the left and right, because that so-called, to my mind, you know, this other of these other pillars of, of the Kabbalistic system and, and where you have the, the left-hand path and the right-hand path, the left-hand path is associated with these energies like mercurial intelligence and, and martial willpower, while the right-hand uh, path is associated with these ideas like this Venusian idea of kind of the conquering forces of nature and, and this, this kind of Jovian spirit of mercy. And so he's having this debate almost with this, this intellectual half himself, the scientist of himself, defending the idea of being the mystic. It's, a, it's as if he wants to go from the one side and cross over to the other side. And he's kind of ultimately arriving at, you know, what is the middle pathway between them, you know? And is that, is that really the way you get up this tree? 
And to that end, Carol, I was really struck by how you were talking about the Neptunian energy, energy and the Piscean energy, and something we didn't really talk about last week, but I was, I was really mystified at one of the illustrations in that kind of like remarkable passage of imageries as, as Jung is kind of like unfolding within himself, that slide 85 in the Red Book. You know, one of, one of these images, there's all these kind of images of these transforming crosses and of these spheres. And in 85, you see this image of this Piscean fish in the sky. Yes. So, so it's almost, I was, I was wondering, you know, this, is this one of these other crossroads that he's dealing with? It's like, it's like we're leaving this Piscean time and entering this Aquarian time. Yeah. And to your point That's, about the yeah. Kabbalah, you know, Chokmah and Bina, you know, that, that Neptune is Keter yeah. on the tree. Neptune is Keter. And that, that God, you know, that, that the divine wishes to see itself and in a powerful contraction, it begins to manifest not materially, but first with insight and surprise and then with reflection. And from an astrological point of view, that's Uranus and, uh, and Saturn. And then as it comes down the tree, then it goes to Da'at, which is Pluto, which is the death, which is the transformative death. But, I, but I, we'll, we'll look at more of these images next time. But all of Jung's mandalas and this world making that he was doing that are part of the images from our last meeting where he's getting, not only is he creating his own language, but he is really out picturing the drawing together of these different directions and, and bathing them in something that's whole. So when you read about Mercury, the psychopomp who, who was Hermes before he was Mercury, and I haven't really talked about Hermes, Mercury in Jung's chart, but this idea that of all in Western mythology, of all the divine uh, creatures, Hermes was the only one who could go into the underworld and come back unscathed. And that not only was he a guide of souls and a transporter of souls, but that he himself could move effortlessly and in fact knew himself as movement that it wasn't that he was going from one place to another, but that it was in the process of movement itself. And some of the original Greek about Hermes talks about that, you know, Herms are markers on a path or cairns, that, that Hermes marks the way, but that in and, in and of itself, the energy, the deity, the force of the hermetic force is not bound by anything. No, it knows itself as it moves. It knows itself by movements, including what the Greeks called the wet paths of the sea currents. And it's about as anti-intellectual as you can get. And, you know, the, just this idea of that how something knows itself is in the moment, not where it attaches, not who it guides, not where it's going, not where it's been, but in the moment knows itself. Alexandra, did you want to still share something? Yeah, I did, um, but I'm trying to compose my thoughts because there's just so much more to think about now after everyone's comments. But I, I guess all I wanted to say is tying from last week's notes that I have about young, I have a note here that he still doesn't know how to give birth to a god. That was mm -hmm. like a comment kind of made, and I thought about... Um, Rainier Maria Rilke's um, Book of Hours, Love Poems to God, and how he places himself as kind of God's father. 
and and God's the son that comes through him and leaves home and leaves him behind and he's forgotten. And I just thought that was a really cool imagery to like compose what we're wrestling with today mm-hmm. and from the last chapter mm-hmm. that we don't we're chasing our own cross, but we also still don't really control what comes after the cross mm-hmm. and yeah. the cross we die on ourselves. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. Will you say that again, what you just expressed? Yeah. Um, that we're chasing after our cross as Christ did our own cross, but at the same time, we don't control what comes after that death or the cross itself that we lose ourselves on. <laughs> yes. Beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. I think we're going to wrap up here, but I think, you know, in the future, Anne can speak for years on Rilke and, and all of the associations. And, and I, you know, for me too, the Salome Institute has relationships to Rilke's original work, and there's so much connection. In fact, in coming sections, in terms of this quality of the future and what comes, there is a section in which what Jung writes is almost verbatim something from letters to a young poet. It's almost verbatim. And so, and they were writing at very much the same time in history. So this quality of the unconscious, the collective birthing coming Mm -hmm. through each person and the way that things are birthed through us, like that psyche is finding a channel through whoever it can find a channel through. And some of us are arriving at exactly the same point to give birth to these things simultaneously. That idea comes through very beautifully in Elizabeth Gilbert's book, The Signature of All Things. If you haven't read that book, I think it's really one of the great modern novels. And Elizabeth Gilbert has been, I think, tossed very unfairly into the chiclet camp of writers. And she's really a profound writer. And The Signature of All Things is an extraordinary book uh, and it has so much of this quality, again, of just the synchronicity of, of coming into form. So in any case, so much of what you just expressed, expressed really moves me. Alexandra, thanks again. Hi, Cindy. Hi. So I just happen to have this right here in front of me. And this is a quote from Rilke. You must give birth to your images. They are the future waiting to be born. Fear not the strangeness you feel. The future must enter you long before it happens. Just wait for the birth, for the hour of new clarity. So good. That's a good way to end. So much beauty and bounty. Thank you to everyone. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. For more, please visit SalomeInstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome podcast.